Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Written in the late 1600s, The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life, following the main character, Christian, on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. More than any other work in the history of the church, The Pilgrim's Progress captures both the struggles and joys of living the Christian life in a way that is not only accurate, but enjoyable to read. So prepare yourself for an epic adventure as we embark on The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. We are busy discussing The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I am your host, Pastor Drew Bieber, and I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. We have already introduced you to who John Bunyan was as well as his book, and we've already talked about sort of uh, what this burden is that Christian has that sets him on this journey. And uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, salvation. We're going to be talking about how Christian gets rid of his burden, uh, what it means after his burden is taken away. Um, and to start, I'd like to just read this first paragraph from the book. And this is coming from uh, chapter seven, the cross. And uh, uh, back to the book, he says, and now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on both sides with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, burdened Christian ran, but not without great difficulty because of the heavy load on his back. He ran thus until he came to a place where there was a hill and upon that hill stood a cross and a little below at the bottom was a sepulcher. And I had to ask you, Josh, what a sepulcher was because I, that's a big word. That's a, that's a very old term. Yeah. And so what is, so we, we understand the cross. What is a sepulcher? It's a tomb. It's a grave. It's a, it's a place for the dead for things to be buried Um, almost uh, kind of a catacomb even kind of comes to mind these old um, kind of gothic looking tombs and catacombs that you think of it's not like a grave like a cemetery we would think of today right it's it's I mean and I guess it could be but it 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 more should conjure up images or 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 give you the, the visual of Kind of those old those catacombs, those those old tombs that were kind of buried a lot of times in, underneath churches or underneath cities, you know that kind of a thing. Yeah. So very a very hey when it's when it's gone, it's gone, gone. You don't go back to visit this thing. This yeah. thing's this thing's dead. It's buried. It's got something really heavy placed on top of it. It's not coming back. Right. Right. And so we see up to this point in the book, Christian has been journeying with his burden. Mm-hmm. He was awakened to the fact that he has a burden. He uh, is evangelized to by evangelist, and he is told he is uh, set on a path to be rid of his burden. And he's been through various uh, uh, trials, various uh, ups and downs up to this point, all with the burden. But it's it's not until he comes to the cross that he is actually right. rid of his burden. And again, just going back to the book, I want to read just one more paragraph. Uh, uh, Bunyan says, so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell off his shoulders and back and began to tumble until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. And I think that's such a, a beautiful picture of, of what salvation 
truly is. Yes. Is it's, uh, or, or at least one, one portion of salvation is we've already identified the burden that Christian has as the conviction and the weight of his sin. Right. And he has journeyed with this weight, with this conviction for uh, quite a long while. Mm-hmm. And he's seen uh, some really rough things and he's also seen some really fantastic things up to this point. Um, and when he comes to the cross of Christ, it's this burden uh, falls off his shoulders and back. And it says that it tumbles until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I think right. that's such a, a beautiful picture because what we read in scripture is that by dying a death on the cross and, and, and being buried, uh, Christ uh, bore the penalty of our sin and our sin was nailed to that cross. And so right. our, our sin was this uh, put to death and buried with Christ in that tomb, in that sepulcher. And we see that illustrated in this portion of, of Bunyan's book. And I just, I just love the way that, that he does that. It fell off his back, began to tumble, came to the mouth of the sepulcher. It fell in and I saw it no more. And, and one of the things, you know, and we can't necessarily know what scriptures Bunyan was thinking of when he wrote this book, because it's so like, like Spurgeon said, if you cut Bunyan, he would have bled the scripture. Right. If you right. cut any portion of this, it, you almost get the same feeling. If you cut anywhere in this book, there's just it's gonna, so much. Yes, packed there's in here. so much scripture packed in it. But if I may, I think he might have had this verse as one of the verses that informed the way that he wrote the allegory yeah. here. It's Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen through fourteen. It says, "And you." Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Yeah. And so at the cross, and the burden's not nailed to the cross. We know from Scripture it was Christ who was nailed to the cross. And by Christ being nailed to the cross through his sacrifice, through his atoning work, through redemption only in him, we see that we can be forgiven of all of our trespasses. They are no more, according to verse 14, it cancels the record of debt that stood against us. It cancels that burden that's crushing us. It cancels the weight of conviction. It cancels all of that. Nailing it to the cross, we see it gone and never to be seen again. And in this allegory, you get a beautiful picture. Not that Christian did anything. He came to the cross. That's all he did. Right. He went through difficulty. He fell into the swamp of despond. He lost a man who he thought would be a companion. He lost Pliable, but Pliable obviously was not a faithful companion. He was, as his name suggests, Pliable. Pliable. He was convinced when Christian argued eloquently, and then he was convinced to leave when things got difficult. Yeah. He was... Christians given assistance through help to get through the swamp of despond. He has difficulty, all with this burden on. And you sit there and think, it would be so much easier without this burden. 
but he cannot get it off. He cannot remove it. There is nothing he can do. He got out of this swamp of despond. You think, well, maybe the burden's going to be a little, little lessened now. Yeah. But it wasn't. There's nothing he could do at all. He threw himself upon the mercy of God at the foot of the cross. And it was at the cross that his burden was removed. And it wasn't through his work. It was through the one who was nailed to that cross. Right, right. And this, you know, there's some there's some echoes of, of John 6 here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in John mm-hmm. 6, you know, uh, it, Jesus really lays out his, uh, really his sovereignty in, in salvation. Um, starting in verse uh, 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And starting in verse 37, I think is where we see uh, again, just some of those scriptures that would come, mm-hmm. that would come out if we were, if we were to cut this, you know, cut this up. Uh, but he says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And, you know, there's obviously some some discussion and some even some disagreement on uh, how people are saved. Um, we would fall into the the camp or the, you know, the uh, doctrinal uh, sort of um, commitment that salvation is a monergistic work. Right. It's a it's it's of God. Uh, it's only of God. And really, um, n- nobody asks to be saved. Nobody wants to be saved unless God first does this work right. in him. And, and I, I, you know, I do believe this is what Jesus is, is hinting at. And John six, when he says, uh, all that the father gives to me will come to me that the coming, uh, of people to Christ is preceded by the giving of the father. Right. And so, uh, but, but there are some who would say that, um, essentially God's, you know, Essentially, when it comes to salvation, that there is a work that is needed to be done by the believer, namely this coming to Christ, that um, Christ has done all the work. You just need to come. You just need to make the decision. Right. You just need to ask him in your heart to use some of the common vernacular. Um, I've heard somebody put it this way. They said, basically, uh, uh, God casts a vote and the devil casts a vote. And basically, you're the tie-breaking vote. And basically putting it in the hands of people that it's it's really up to you to come. And this is actually a work that you do. And essentially God's done everything except this so as to not violate your free right. will. And we would obviously not deny that man has a will, but we would say that it is not a sovereign or autonomous will, that it right. is a creaturely and contingent will. And and the the way that that Bunyan writes it, I think well, I'm I am very convinced he would he would agree with where we are in that it's not about the coming. Right. If it were about the coming, the the going to the light, if it was about something that we could conjure up in and of ourselves, then the second Christian took that first step towards it. His the, burden would have the fallen, burden off, would have fallen off. But it wasn't until he reached the cross where the work had been accomplished through Christ. Right. And only through Christ. Well, and we see, I mean, we see this illustrated at several points 
in the book up to this chapter that Christian recognizes he had as a burden, but he has no way to be rid mm-hmm. of this burden. And even when he gets to the cross, he isn't ridding himself of his burden. His burden just falls off his back. Right. Yeah. He doesn't, it doesn't say that, that he can all of a sudden it's, it's loosened. And so he, he, he can he get himself pulls free. the strength, strengths off. Yeah. Right? It doesn't say anything like that. It just, whatever was holding it to him, it's not there anymore, and it just falls from him. Yeah. And it falls from him not because of the strength of his hand and not because of the obedience with which he's walked. Nothing like that. It falls off of him because of the one who was nailed on the cross. Right. Because of right. the work that was accomplished there. His burden could not stand against him anymore because his burden was removed from him by Christ. As the scripture tells us, he became the curse for us. Yeah. He took on our sins. And we see beautifully, and I, I love this, that that he's he's there. He sees this site where the cross is there. His burden is released, it falls, and it's buried, and it's never to be seen again. But that's not the end of what happens in salvation. And that, right. I, that's something I tell kids. Look, the reality is that we are called to be holy. We are called to be upright and righteous. Why? Because that's who God is. Yeah. If we are going to be with God, we need to be like God in our righteousness, in our goodness. Well, just having our burden removed doesn't make us righteous. Right. right. It doesn't make us holy. It makes us neutral, perhaps. Right. Yeah. No, at, at the very least. At the very but, or at the very most. Yeah, but no neutral party will enter in the gates of heaven. It doesn't no. it doesn't say, you know, oh, upon your neutrality, welcome into the streets of gold. Yeah. Nothing like that. It's not merely that at the cross our burden is released, our sin is nailed to the cross, our curse is taken away. But we are also given a righteousness that is foreign to us. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that we see that illustrated in in Bunyan's allegory, uh, going back to the book, he says, and now as he stood, speaking of Christian, uh, looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and greeted him with peace unto you. The first said to him, your sins are forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with fine clothes. And the third shining one put a mark on the Christian's forehead, gave him a scroll with a seal upon it and encouraged him to read it on his journey. He told Christian that he should turn it in at the celestial gate. So the shining ones left Christian and went on their way. And we see that it wasn't enough for his burden to fall on his back. Like you said, it's not enough to simply have our debt canceled. We need someone else's righteousness. Right. Simply erasing the sin does not give us a, a righteousness. It simply, like you said, at most just kind of puts us on neutral ground yeah. where we have no righteousness and yet there's no sin uh, that, that we owe a, a debt for. But in addition to having our sins removed, we have to have a righteousness in our account in order to truly right. be saved. And that righteousness is the active obedience of of Christ. Right. Uh, and we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in, in Tim's sermon on, on law and gospel, that it's in Christ that we see the law and the gospel 
uh, meet together because Christ maintained righteousness under the law. And so not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, not only did he erase the debt on our accounts, but it was through his righteousness under the law that we have righteousness credited now, imputed to us and credited to our accounts. And I do, I do think that's what we see illustrated in, in these three shining ones. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as I, as I read this, I do think that these three shining ones uh, are representative of of the Trinity. Yeah, God we do the meet, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We do meet shining ones uh, throughout various stages of of the book, um, but in this particular um, illustration of salvation, I do believe what we're seeing is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. The other shining ones either they, they're confirming what happens here, right? But they never they never add to or detract from the salvation that's given. Right. And and salvation is is only a work of God. Yes. From beginning to end. Uh now, you know, it, it and I do agree, I think that that's what Bunyan's intent was is for us to see that in salvation all three members of the Godhead, the the one God in three persons, all three persons are vital. Right. And, and you can't remove their role in salvation but because it's an allegory and because the Trinity is so difficult, we don't want to make the mistake of saying, well, this is an accurate and perfect description of the Trinity of God because it does fail at several points. But I do think that's what Bunyan is is doing here. He's saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in the work of salvation. And you see uh, how they uniquely work through salvation. Right, right. And uh, you know, we've we've been going with our students in a in a series talking about who God is, and, and we dealt with the Trinity. And one of the things I I laid out in that in that message is that the salvation is a distinct and unique work of the Triune God. That if there's no Trinity, there's no salvation because right. we see that it's God the Father who elects a people unto Himself. It's God the Father who sends His Son uh, to the world to save those people. And it's God the Son who uh, lives righteously and perfectly under the law and yet pays the penalty for sin under that same law. And it's God the Son who is raised from the dead, uh, conquering sin and death, but then also leading the way so that we too may be raised from our deadness and sin. And it's the Holy Spirit who uh, applies that work of salvation to the heart of the believer. And that's what we see uh, in these three shining ones. The first one said to him, your sins are forgiven. Right. I do believe that's representative of God the Father. Right. The second one stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a fine new clothes. I do believe that's representative of Christ the Son, uh, imputing his righteousness Absolutely. to Christian. And then the third shining one put a mark on Christian's forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal upon it. I do believe that that is representative of God the Spirit who applies this work of salvation to the heart of the believer and, and, and marks the believers, uh, out from the rest of the world. Um, and, and, uh, like we said, we, we seals, uh, the heart of the believer in, in their salvation. Yeah. And, and you see, you know, these, these are not just things that are made up just for the sake of an allegory. These have biblical truths to it. Again, if you cut this open, you're going to see scripture dripping from it. You know, you see all throughout the gospels, Christ will look at a person and he'll say, your sins are forgiven. And, and people get so mad. They say, you're, you're making yourself equal with God, the father. And, and, Yes, that is that is what yes. God the Father does. <laughs> God the Father declares you not guilty. 
you know, or he he declares, you know, that your sins are forgiven. Well, and that's the divine right of God the Son to also forgive sins. Right. And he does it in in on his work on the cross. Uh the being dressed in his righteousness, having the rags removed and being given new garments. Uh, that is scripturally, it's not just a hymn, you know, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne right, on Christ. Right. It's not just a hymn. It's got biblical truth to it. Isaiah 61 10 tells us, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We see that that is a scriptural thing, that Christ gives us righteousness, that we are clothed in righteousness. We are given a righteousness that is foreign to us, that's alien to us in our own standing. Right, right. But because of the work of Christ, because of his righteousness, we can have it. And then with the Spirit, where he impresses upon the forehead of Christian, it's almost you get this sense that that he is he is branding him. He is mine, and yes. it's in the most yes. evident spot possible. Everywhere he goes, when people look at him, he's branded. Yeah, that's mine. That that is no one else's, and that is the mark of the Spirit. Everywhere you go, the Spirit indwells the heart of the believer. Yes. It is the Spirit who is at work in the lives of the believer. And when you see a person, and as the Bible tells us to look at the fruit of a person and to examine uh, a person's behavior and to see if they are one of those in the faith, we're not looking at that person we're looking at what's branded on that person. We're looking at the Spirit's work in that person. Right, right. And it becomes alive and it becomes awakened to our eyes and our senses that, yes, they belong. Not because of their own their own abilities or authorities or sovereignties, but because it's evident they've been branded with the Spirit of right. God. And this Spirit of God, this third shiny one, also gives uh, Christian a scroll. Mm-hmm. And it says... Uh, uh, here in the book, uh, he gave him a scroll with a seal upon it and encouraged him to read it on his journey. He told Christian that he should turn it in at the celestial gate. I do believe that um, we see that Christian's burden is removed, the conviction of sin, the weight of sin is taken from him, is put to death along with Christ. But I do believe that this scroll is also a, a significant um, image, at least in, in Bunyan's book of what true salvation yeah. is. And we see throughout the book uh, there are there are other references to this certificate. Right. Um, um, at, at one point, uh, Hopeful makes a comment on one of the other, uh, I would say, false pilgrims on the journey, uh, or, or I don't remember exactly what the story is, but but he makes a comment about well, it's it's a wonder that his certificate wasn't taken. Right. Right. That they right. didn't take his certificate. And then even uh, when they do finally get to the celestial city. Uh, Christian and Hopeful both are presenting their certificates right. uh, as as sort of their evidence of their salvation. And we'll get into this a, a little bit more later, but we also see at the end of the book that ignorance makes it to the celestial city, but he doesn't have a certificate. Right. And it's it's interesting here that we see the certificate, the certificate given to Christian. Yes. And it's a distinguishing mark that, that if you don't have this certificate, if you do not have 
what has been given to you only at the cross. Yes. If you don't have that, you're not making it to the end of this journey. Well, you're where not you, truly saved. Yeah, you're not truly saved. You, you, you'll make it to death. You'll make it before the judgment, but you will not make it into the celestial city, yeah. which is what you've hoped for. We don't see faithful get his certificate. We don't. Mm-mm. We don't see hopeful get his certificate, but we know that they have them. Right. It's painfully evident throughout the story they have them, you know, and, and they struggle. They have difficult times. Faithful, certainly, unto death, yes. has a terrible time. Um, but their certificate is evidenced not just because they can pull out and say, here's my sheet of paper, but it's evidenced through how they live. Yes. It's evidenced yes. through the branding that they have on their entire life. Um, and I think that's important that we're never, I cannot look at you, you cannot look at me, you cannot see the burden of my sin or what I struggle with any more than I can look at this burden of your sin or what you struggle with. That's not for my eyes. I can't see it. In the same way, I cannot see your salvation. Yes. And you can't see mine. Well, I think that's something that Bunyan does very good in this book is that Christian, um, Christian is saved. His burden's removed. He receives this certificate. And he meets several people on his journey. And yet at no point does anyone, or Christian for that matter, Say, well, let me take a look at your certificate. Right. Uh, show me your salvation. Yeah, and right? he doesn't offer it to anyone else. It's right. not something that they can see. Yeah. I, they can't perceive it. They cannot see his certificate any more than he can. And I think that's illustrative of the fact that there is no way for me to see in your heart to see if you truly have right. been saved, if you truly have been born again. But the evidence of your salvation yes. will come out in the way that you live. It, it, and that's what we see as Christian journeys with these these false pilgrims is yes. that, uh, you know, as he as he talks with them, as he converses with them, he realizes that they don't know what it truly means to be saved. They've never been to the cross. Right. They, like they, you know, they they are pursuing, you know, the path for, uh, you know, for personal gain. They, they you know, as I think it was. um Mr. Byans, you know, says, well, when the winds are fair and like, I I like, I like religion, but when it doesn't suit my needs, I don't like it. That's right. You know? And so we can see clearly that this individual does not have a certificate. This individual has not been to the cross. This individual truly has not had his sin dealt with, his sin put away, his sin put to death and has not been given newness of life that can only come through, uh, through Christ. Instead, he is deceiving himself. Uh, really only by by engaging in these, you know, sort of religious endeavors without right. actually possessing true salvation. And it's a gut punch when you get to the end in yeah. particular. And I know we'll get to this, you know, later on in the discussion. But it's a gut punch when you get to the end and you see a guy who, man, I mean, he, th- he really did think that he was good. He was good. Yeah. But he was not. And it's just it's it's a reminder just of the stakes of this thing, man. That it's not about it's not about our own abilities. It's not about our own righteousness or our being able to have willpower to stop doing a bad thing. It's not about any of those kinds of things. It's about Christ. Yes. From beginning to end and all the stuff in between, it's about Christ. And and it reminds me so much of Acts four twelve 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I cannot trust in my own name in my own abilities. I cannot trust in the name of my pastor. I cannot trust in the name of anybody who loves me. I cannot trust in the name of parents, parents, siblings, nobody. It's only in the name of Christ and only in the work and life of Christ, his life before the cross and his life after Yes, Mm -hmm. the death, burial, and praise God, resurrection. Yeah. And so we see, you know, we've, this is I, I want to say this is the shortest chapter in the book. Um, it's also it's the chapter. Close. It's, it's close. also the chapter where we we heard the first song in the book, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a, a lot of fun. And we've almost read through basically the entire chapter over the course of of this discussion. Yeah. But what, you know, in this chapter, we do see a very beautiful picture of what salvation looks like, what salvation is, uh, how it sort of works in the life of uh, of a Christian. But you know, this is. You know, this is obviously an allegory. This mm-hmm. is also a very picturesque um, sort of telling of what salvation is. Uh, but how how does this actually work in in real life, right? Because yeah. in real life, uh, there's nobody living in a city of destruction. You and I don't live in a city of destruction. Right. We live, we live in you know a suburb of Birmingham. You know? Right. Although, as you mentioned uh, before, we started this discussion that. Birmingham will be destroyed one day. Right. Uh, we have, so a, new, have sense, a new earth. Yeah. And so that, you know, what we know is Birmingham today. Yeah. It's not going to be around like it is today. But, but, but salvation and it is not a physical pilgrimage right. in the life of a believer. I don't actually go somewhere. I don't have a physical burden on my back that needs to be removed. And, and yet these things are all sort of pointing to uh, you know, spiritual realities in, in the life of, of a Christian. And so what is it, what does it actually look like for someone to go from life into death? What does it actually look like for um, someone who is awakened to the conviction of their sin to go uh, from there to the cross? How, how do we get there? Yeah. So um, first we have to, we have to go back in that, that you and I can never get you there. Right. You know, again, it's only through Christ. You know, we can never get you to that place. We can never, through eloquence or or, or charm, you know, nothing like that. We can't get you from death to life. Only yeah. Christ can. Mm-hmm. But what we can do, what we can do is we can point you to Him, just like evangelist did. Yeah, evangelist did exactly what he was supposed to do. He didn't. He didn't say, "Let me, let me, let me get this burden off of you." There was nothing like he said. Yeah. He said, yeah. "Go to Christ. Go to Christ." And he pointed them in their way. What we can do is point to Christ. And the way we do it is we have to do it just like how the book starts off. We've got to show you the law. And then because of the law, we can show you the sweetness of the cross of Christ. So what I do is I follow a method called the way of the master. Um, And it's been around for a good while. It was... uh, popularized by Ray Comfort and Kurt Cameron who do mm-hmm. a training and now you've got guys like Todd Friol who's jumped in the mix and and you've got some some really really wonderful teaching that's coming out of of living waters and things like that but it starts off with the law and and so I'll I'll kind of take you through a mock um version of it you know Drew would you consider yourself to be a good person 
And I imagine. Yeah, nine times out of ten. You compare maybe. yourself to other people. You know, you compare yourself to, uh, you know, maybe a neighbor you have or something. Anyone can compare right. themselves to someone else, and they can find themselves a good person. Yeah. And so, usually the the responses come come like this. Well, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I never stole anything. That's right. I never killed anybody. Right. Of course I'm a good person. Yeah. Yes, I'm a good person. You know, you know, I'm not the best person, but I'm a good person. Yeah. I, well, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not perfect, but, you know, at least I'm trying. And that's the heart of the difficulty. If you think you're a good person, you don't see the burden. Right. Absolutely. So do you consider yourself to be a good person? And almost everyone yeah, I consider myself to be a good person. Drew, would you mind if I asked you a few questions to see if that's true? Sure. All right, so when we're talking about good, we have to put the right standard up there. And we're not talking about a good that we compare to other people because we can always find ourselves better than someone in some area. We have to put ourselves against the standard of God. So we're going to use some of the Ten Commandments. Because that is the standard of God's goodness. So, have you ever told a lie before? Yes. Of course. Who hasn't, right? Mm-hmm. What does that make you if you tell a lie? Someone who lies. Someone who lies. <laughs> if I were to look right at you, and if I were to tell you a bold-faced lie right at your face, and it was to the detriment of someone that you love, just told you a bold-faced lie, what would you call me? A liar. A liar. liar. Because I would be, right? Yeah. So Liars lie. If you tell a lie, you are a liar. Have you ever stolen anything, even if it's something really small? Yes, I have, actually. When I was young, um, I went to the store with my mom, and I asked if I could have some candy, and she told me no. And we got in the car and we drove home and about halfway home, I said, well, can I have my candy now? And I actually, I actually, she said no. And I just took it and stuck it in my pocket. Now, thankfully she took me back and I had to return it. Right. Um, but yes, I have actually stolen something before. I have a similar story with a pack of juicy fruit, not with candy, but with a pack <laughs> of juicy fruit. And so we have, we have, we are, you know, we're felons, we're thieves, you know, we're yeah. the worst. The worst. But even and go even deeper than that, you know, taking something that doesn't belong to you, is stealing. Yes. You know, even if it even if it's something and and you and I both have young ones, little ones, you know, who struggle with this, if my kids take something from their sibling that doesn't belong to them, it doesn't matter the value of it, it doesn't matter the uh the you know whether even if they gave it back you take something that belongs to you, you've stolen. I know yeah. your your kids will struggle with that or probably already have yes. struggled with that. Oh, my goodness. Um, we've all stolen. So yeah. a liar. And what would you call it? What do you call someone who steals? A thief. A thief. Have you ever, uh, have you ever wanted something that didn't belong to you? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's coveting. Mm-hmm. So by your own admission... You are a lying, thieving, coveter by heart. That's only three of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Have you ever hated someone before? Yes. I have as well. There were times growing up where my brother was <laughs> hated by me, all right? It might not have lasted for forever, but oh, I hated him for those minutes. Yeah. Christ tells us in Matthew 5 that if you've hated anyone in your heart, you have committed murder against them. Yeah. By our own admission, 
Drew, you and I, the men sitting in this room right now, pastors, on our own strength, by our own abilities, our goodness rises to the level of being lying, thieving, covetous murderers at heart. And I think it's it's good to to interject just this this theological distinction that it isn't that by doing these things we become thieves or we become liars or we become adulterers. It's because of the fact that we are thieves, mm-hmm. we are adulterers. It's not our actions don't bring about our condition as sinners. It's our sinful condition that brings about these right. actions. Because I'm a thief, I steal. Right. Right. Because it, I'm a liar, I lie. Yes. Because yes. I'm a murderer, I hate. You know, it's, yeah. it's that you know. It's not because I hate. I am. No, I am a murderer, and that's I why. Hate. And that's why I hate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so with those things, all of a sudden, I don't look so good. No. And neither do you. You know, we 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 don't see ourselves under the law of God as good. In fact, we see ourselves burdened. Yeah. So. I've taken you through that law, and those are only four of the Ten Commandments. And if I were to ask you now, if God gave you justice according to that law, would you be innocent or guilty? No, I'd be guilty. Guilty. Straight because, to hell, do not because, pass go, right. do not pass, collect $200. Yeah, and you know you would go to hell. Yeah. And does that concern you? Yes. Yes. Because our souls are precious to us. You might meet some people along the way who say, oh, no, nah, it doesn't bother me, it doesn't worry me at all. You right. know, I'll be fine going to hell, you know, whatever. And, That's where all my friends are. And I'll look at them and I'll say, well, what if? What about this? If, if I could, if I would, I would give you a million dollars right now if you would go down to the eye clinic, if you will surgically remove both of your eyes, no pain involved, but you'll just never be able to see again. I'll give you a million dollars. Would you do it? And without any, any exception, they've all said no. I say, no, you wouldn't do that because your eyes are precious. Right. They are, they are essential to your enjoyment, to who you are. How much more so is your soul? Yeah. And so it should concern you. So, we stand before God guilty of breaking his law and we've got to face him on judgment day. We're guilty. We deserve to go to hell under the law. How do we get out of it? Yeah. And the Bible tells us we have to be completely righteous. We're not righteous. We've just proven that. Yeah. So he says, let's say that the judge stands before us and says, you have broken the law. You're going to jail. Or pay the fine. Well, what's the fine? It's the righteousness. We don't have it. We're bankrupt there. We've got, we don't, there's nothing we can do. Let's say in that courtroom, though, just as the judge is about to pronounce judgment, a man walks in through the back that we don't even know and says, hold on a second, judge. I'll pay the fine. And the judge says, fine. Your debt has been paid. You are now no longer guilty under the law. You are free to live. That is what Christ has done through his work on the cross. Mm -hmm. And not only does this debt get forgiven, but then Christ says, and you know what you're going to need? 
you're going to need a way to live life. And so he gives us all of his riches so that we can live lives that are completely removed from the life we knew before. Yes. And that's the gospel. Yeah. It's what Christ has done through his work on the cross. Our debt is forgiven. Our righteousness is secure. We have seen that the law has put us under burdens and under condemnation and judgment. But in Christ, through his work on the cross, we can have forgiveness. So at this point, you know, people will look at it and they'll say, well, what do I, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. Yeah. And I would tell them this. Again, I can't get you there. Yeah. It's only in Christ that you can get there. But let me point to you what the Bible says. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe in the gospel. That is Christ's words, repent and believe in the gospel. So you must repent of your sins, turn from your wickedness, turn your back on it, completely say, I don't want anything to do with that life. I've been given a righteousness and my life is not my own. I am now living according to the righteousness and what has been granted me by this person who I didn't even know before. Yeah. Repent. And believe in the gospel. And it's not just enough to make a mental assent that, okay, yes, Jesus really is real. That's what ignorance does, and he does not make it into the celestial city. Right, yeah. And I would say it's like this. Belief is, is, is more in line like this. If you were on an airplane and the pilot comes over the speaker and says, the plane's about to crash, you need to put on a parachute, what would you do? you put on the parachute. you put on a parachute. It's yeah. the only way you can be saved. And you would put it in, put it on. He would make sure it was strapped in. Let's say there was a passenger next to you who said, I don't believe the plane's going to crash, looked at you, saw you wearing your parachute and started ridiculing you openly, saying you look so stupid wearing that parachute. You're not going to care one bit because you recognize there's only one way I can get, I can be saved. And you would strap it in. And that's the kind of trust we're talking about. It's the trust like you'd have in that parachute. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what anyone does to me. This is how I am saved. Right, right. And only this. And so that's, that is the way that when I have evangelistic encounters, that's how I point them to Christ. Yeah. And that's takes them through the law puts them before the cross and the gospel of Christ and then tells them it's in no other name than through him, through our faith and trust in Christ and what he has accomplished, not in what we can muster up in our own strength. And so hopefully that takes what we're discussing now from the level of allegory and puts it in the life of where we are today And any listener out there, you must be saved. You must be saved. Otherwise, you will not enter into that celestial city. You will not know Christ. You will not know his goodness. And so if you are here listening under the sound of my voice today, I encourage you, rejoice in this gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if you are not saved, put your trust wholly in him. Let his work on the cross be given to you for salvation. And if you are a believer, rejoice that salvation has been granted.
through the cross. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of the Pilgrim's Progress, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you consider what it means to be a pilgrim in this world. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from North Clay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.